time for another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. We're rocking out here at Tennis.com podcast this week. That uh, new music you hear, hopefully it uh, sounds better to you. It uh, sounds better to us. And I want to thank the Bouncing Souls, uh, a 20-year veteran punk band from New Jersey, uh, for letting us use their music. Uh, they're a great group of guys. I want to say thanks to Greg. And, oh, James, uh, you're so hip. I am, I, I've been listening He's to them the for a while. the music guy. <laughs> and uh, it was, anything was better than what we had. Let's just put it that way. But th- this is actually good. And uh, I just want to thank those guys and uh, check them out. They have a new album out. And, um, well, here we are. I'm James Martin with Steve Tigner and Pete Bodo for this week's podcast. And we're coming off a, a huge weekend, obviously, in some people's minds. But the Fed Cup was played over the weekend. And uh, really, let's get started. I mean, I think it was a big weekend for Melanie O'Dan in the U.S. They won. They, they beat France um, 5-0. And really for O'Dan, I think, is a story coming out of that tie. She won both her singles, and uh, they were tough matches, and she gritted them out, and considering, guys, that she you know, hasn't done well, obviously had a bad start to the year, not played much, but didn't do well in Australia, lost first round, lost first round in her other warm-up event. Pretty impressive that she came through on a, on a fairly high-bouncing clay court, from what I saw, um, and won I, those matches. I thought she looked better and, and than she has recently. Her forehand was better. That that had been a shot that had been letting her down, and just the fact that she could prove that... Um, she can win pressure, pressurized matches on clay on a different surface away. They weren't, she didn't beat anybody in the top 10, but, um, but she won close matches. She made some, some tactical changes as well that were, that were smart. She, I, just a couple little things to help her in the second match. She, she changed her return position. Just things that you don't always see young players do. How much do you think that was her or how much yeah, it could have been Mary her jo. coach? I mean, maybe that's... Maybe that's part of it, too, Mary Jo Fernandez. Yeah, okay, here comes my PSA for Fed Cup now because, uh, you know, oh, one not. of the great things about Fed Cup is that you get this, um, you know, it, it's one, it's two matches, basically. So, you know, it's not like a tournament where you go in, you get a tough draw, you're looking at seven matches at a Grand Slam, saying, oh, you know, this is this is tough, I'm not playing that well. You know, it's Fed Cup, you practice for a week, you get the buildup from your team and your coach, everyone fires you up. And someone like Melanie, who really did need these wins, as you guys just said, you know, she, she could really have used these wins. They were all playing lousy when they got there. I got that from Patrick McEnroe, our Davis Cup captain, said they were real concerned about how we we're going to do because the girls weren't playing well. All of a sudden, they get a little bit of, you know, they get a little bit of team spirit going. They get a little confidence going maybe from the way they're hitting the ball. And, and she puts up two wins. You know, that's the kind of thing that can, you know, you know turn somebody around and, and, and get her off to a good but start. But is, it better, is it better, Pete, to have to not have the Williams sisters there so you, so you see these people and uh, do these things and get there and get a chance like a, a second tier person or a, or a younger player like Udan it's almost it's, the event is almost helped by the lack of by yeah. the lack of stars we actually had a couple emails on that and I think that's a good point I, I'd l- if, if you're going to keep Fed Cup I think it would be cool to see it become almost the feeder competition where people know and expect um, that it's going to be the young up-and-comers who are playing those events not to draw parallels to soccer I, I have a passion for it but if you look at uh, in England and all the other countries they have minor cup competitions like the Carlin Cup in England and everyone knows that you're not going to get the first team pick there it's all the up-and-coming players guys you don't know about but it's exciting in that sense because you get to see who the future is and it would be kind of cool if you know Fed Cup became synonymous not with trying to get the best players but who are who are the next generation? Yeah, maybe Wimbledon can be like a, a warm up too somehow. You know, maybe we could also like you know take a little bit of that away because it, wouldn't it be cool to see a nobody win Wimbledon? No, no, no. Come no. on, give me a break. You're just Fed trashing Cup. Te- Fed Cup again. Well, if it's not if it's not great for the if it's not the best for the fans who who would probably want to see Venus and Serena it is it is great to see these players play 
in these really meaningful matches. I mean, watching Udan play Cornet versus Serena versus Cornet, it's actually going to probably get a more competitive and compelling match if it's Udan just because their playing levels are more similar than as Serena came in. Well, so. that's the upside. You know, that, that's the upside of, of having stars who don't always play. And look, I got no problem with people skipping Fed Cup and Davis Cup now and then. Or, you know, but there's a basic, there's a, you know, look, it's one of those things, you know, you don't know how to define it, but you know what when you see it. You know, you, you know these guys, they play a couple of years, they, they win a cup, they, they, you know, they, they're in different stages of their career. So, yeah, so you give them a pass. You don't have to, the, the best people don't have to play all the time for the thing to have any credibility. I, I fully believe that. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's nice to see some of these young people. I was, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised by the crowd there. At first, it looked like nobody was there. The lights were, were dim around the court in, in France. But um, when they showed the crowd, there was a lot of enthusiasm. It was a weird look. It was very dark around there, which is, you know, weird That's for a, a TV though. experience. But More um, enthusiasm than there would have been here, I think. Oh, I'm sure. There's no doubt about that. Um, from going from Udan and, and the U.S., they are obviously set up a a tie against Russia at home in the U.S. in April. Um, Russia obviously dispatched um, a couple, uh, well, I guess used to be good players, but um, what happened to Ivanovich, man? She she just flamed out, lost um, all her matches. She this lost, is unbelievable. She lost three matches. She lost two singles and a doubles. Right now, I mean, she's playing with no confidence, um, but yet at the same same time she just signed a what they're calling a lifetime contract with Adidas, which we're not sure what that that means exactly and how much of that money it is means guaranteed. Till she dies, Steve. What's that? It means till she dies. Cradle to grave. <laughs> Cradle to grave, but as far as the money goes, it's hard to tell exactly what that means since not a lot of it is guaranteed and a lot of it is incentives on her play, which has been pretty bad recently. She's she stuck. gets 15 grand <laughs> when she turns 60 and a watch. I mean, it, it is an interesting point. That She's starting to remind me a little bit of, of Anna Kornikova in, in this, her total lack of confidence, but yet but still, she's a star, and, and maybe, that, maybe that extra um, stardom or that, that added element has, has hurt her a bit. Maybe Kornikova didn't deal with that pressure well. She, she, her game was completely different when she played singles and doubles. She couldn't handle pressure in singles, but she was still an excellent doubles player, and she, she was a very good player despite her reputation. She was the number one junior in the world, and Ivanovic obviously was an even better player. She won the French Open, but she's, she, right now it looks like she's going in that direction. It's a tailspin, Pete. I mean, I, I mean, it is unbelievable. It's at her age, with her ground game, her service deserter. I mean, only knows only she knows what's going on inside her head. But it, it's just it's just becoming the hardest thing to watch in tennis right now. Well, this is almost like PSA number two for Fed Cup on my behalf because look, I mean, this setup. They this, pay you? Could you imagine? <laughs> right, they're going to have to start. ITF, I got to check his <laughs> mail. Man. No, but I mean, this setup. Look, I mean, look, this setup is about. This was the nightmare scenario. Think about it. They're in Belgrade at home. You know, the adoring crowd. They want to do well. It's all about Serbia all the time in Serbia now. So, you know, then you have Jankovic is on the team too. She's rebuilding. She's rebuilding her career. You know, she's starting to play a little bit better than she was. And she, much like Ivanovic, had suffered some hard times. So the two of them, they're kind of frenemies, I guess. So the two of them are now on the same team, at home. Everyone's got high expectations. They're playing a quality team, but a beatable team. You know, Clay Benova just isn't quite there yet as a, as a big-time singles player. So now, there it is, a table set. And, man, you couldn't, you couldn't have dreamed up a, a worse scenario. Jankovic, uh, I'm sorry, Jankovic wins. Both of her matches, three sets, puts up a big win over Kuznetsova, and then Ivanovic goes out there. She has a chance, actually, to clinch the tie uh, for the Serbs, and she, you know, 
loses pretty badly to Klaibin, uh to Kuznetsova. You know, she, you know, so she won like a total of eight or nine games in, in her two singles and then goes out and, and really stank the joint out in doubles. So this too. is your PSA 4 Fed Cup, Pete? Well, well, well yeah. Well, <laughs> I want to watch shows this. You, it shows you the shaping influence it can have. On things, well, she's so. been she's been terrible. I, mean, I don't think this had anything to do with Fed Cup. I mean, this just has to do with the fact that Ivanovich has no confidence right now in her game. And I, if anything, I would have thought that having a coach and 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 that support might have helped. I mean, some players respond well to that having that you know that that coach and the teammates you know trying to you know exhort you to do better. I mean, obviously it didn't happen, but. Well, you got a good snapshot of where uh, of, of where Ivanovich is at. I think that's and another Kornikova parallel, just to just to keep that going for for yeah. some reason. Um, yeah, he, where do you come up with this, James? Korn- I don't know. Steve <laughs> is like he's really riding this horse pretty hard today. Kornikova. It started with her serve, and then went to the rest of her game. And I feel it almost seems like that's what's happened with Ivanovich. Like last year, it was her serve. Now it seems like it's it's uh, you know everything else as well. That's true. You know, actually, you know, it's funny you mentioned Kornikova. The, the person I've been thinking about in terms of Ivanovich is Chris Everett. You know, she was a lot like Chris Everett as a player, in my opinion. She, you know, she, she hit a very clean ball. And yeah. you know, she, her ground game, you know, very crisp, very precise, not a lot of spin, not a lot of athleticism, not a lot of power. Um, uh, she could crank her serve, of course, and, you know, um, superb backhand. But still, you know, she, she was on that Everett model. And so she was winning, I think, at her peak when she won that French Open. She was playing with confidence. She was she was playing with great precision. She was not making unforced errors. She was serving automatically. And Steve, I think you're right about that. She's wandering around, walking around under that serve after she tosses it. And you know now, you know the the key thing though is once that nerve, that coolness, you know, once you lose your cool and you start thinking, what happens if I miss this ball or you get a little tight? It's death for someone like her because she can't. She's not going to be able to serve or hit her way out of trouble. Well, and I mean, anyone that plays tennis knows. If you're not serving well against anybody at any level, it can just kill the rest of your game, your confidence. But, Pete, I, you actually just wrote a, an interesting story for Tennis Magazine on uh, Vati Sova, and you interviewed Mary Carrillo for that. And she had an interesting quote about the women and, and how she kind of sees players and why these women break down in terms of the, the, the training and, and, and how they build their games and how they're almost a recipe for falling apart later when things get difficult. You want to, I thought you want to shed some light Well, on yeah, that, it's funny. I think what Mary was saying in Vitasova's case, what she saw Vitasova as a supremely confident young ball belter, you know, came up, had some great results. And then, but then when things started to get a little tough near the top, the pressure started to kick in, the expectations were there all of a sudden. She started to basically, when her she started to lose her nerve a little bit, and when she started losing her nerve, she started to turn to the player box all the time, to whether it's a coach, a boyfriend, whomever, and, you know, you, you could see. And, and I think the way Mary put it was, you know, that's, when, that's what happens when the poles that hold up the tent of your game, a strong wing comes along, you know, just blows them right over. And I think, you know, uh, in, to Ivanovich's credit, I think she's one of the more independent players out there. It's, it's not an issue here of her being emotionally needy, you know, like a Safina. You know who, who you right, know couldn't right. take her eyes off the player guest box. You know I kind of admire Ivanovich for being mature enough to go out there and and deal with her own burdens. So you know, now on she her own. she gets the last few times I've seen her play, she gets emotional and and down right away now, which wasn't true um, a, a while ago. But but in, for the women in general, I think I think that the at a place like Balotelli's when they're when they come and they the and people see them with a lot of talent when they're young. The immediate thing is to teach them how to hit the ball hard immediately because that, that's the surest way to win matches. And, and those, the girls have to be good young, younger than, younger than the men do. So they don't, a lot of times I don't think they end up with a, with a lot more, with, with a lot of variety or finesse, a lot more than, than hitting the ball hard because that's the one surefire way to win. And, and if that doesn't work, like 
like Mary Carrillo says, there's there's not a lot no more there. No plan for B. Them. There's no plan B. And and the big news this week, as Steve had alluded to earlier, was that uh, while Ivanovich is struggling, and obviously Maria Sharapova, we know what happened to her in Australia. We we've learned over the last month that. Maria signs this, you know, eight-year, $75 million, a $70 million endorsement deal with Nike, the largest for uh, a female athlete ever. And then, and then here you have Ivanovich signing a lifetime clothing deal. Uh, our gear editor here wanted me to make sure it, to mention it was not with just not the shoes, just the clothes, but uh, a lifetime deal. And what does this say about women's tennis? Does it say anything about women's tennis? Is, you know, I mean, you have guys like Andy Murray and, and, and other top men who get endorsement deals, but they typically get them because they're winning, because they're putting up results. Obviously, Maria and Ivanovich, they're still young. They can still turn things around. No one's writing them off. And yet, let's face it, th- th- these endorsement deals are tied up with their looks. Marion Bartoli coming out recently saying that <laughs> she thinks, hey, I'm not getting any endorsement deals. Does it have to do with the fact that you know I'm not tall, blonde, and, and beautiful? And, and there is something to be said about that. There is a, there is a double standard. I'm not sure... It's necessarily a bad thing. It's what women's tennis has, has long been about. But there what you else go. can you do? Yeah. I mean, you have to create stars out of somebody, and the easiest way to create a star is somebody that people want to look at, right? Like Maria Sharapova is. She might. I feel like she's not the most popular player among tennis fans, but she is. She is a face. She's a face of the game, and people people who don't normally follow tennis will know her name. And it's and the same with Ivanovich. Th- those are the people you can create stars that go beyond go beyond the hardcore tennis fan. At the risk of making you all vomit, I have to bring up the word branding. There it is. That's our word of the, of, the, of, of the decade, I guess, maybe. And, you know, that's clearly what these companies are trying to do. They're looking at an Ivanovich and a Sharapova. They know there's a base there in tennis. The more they do in tennis, the better it is. You know, everybody wins. It's all good. But they're looking way beyond that. They're looking at turning, you know, these women into sort of icons that transcend the sport. WTA has really facilitated this. They've bent over backwards. You know, somebody from Vogue magazine calls for a little interview, and, and you've got 15 people from the WTA chasing around, tackling the people to do the interview because right. they're going to be in Vogue. It's a crossover opportunity, well, I, you know, which is crazy, I, th- I, I personally think. I, I agree with you, P. I think one of the big problems with women's tennis since Kornikova really is that the WTA has enabled the situation, and they and they've helped create the culture of the diva or the culture of the player bigger than the tour, and pu- putting them out there in the vogues and all the the mainstream media stuff. And then what happens is it comes back and bites the WTA because then you have players that feel like, oh, I don't need to play all these events, I don't need to support the tour. You know, I'll go do my cheesy little ten minutes at the media hour, and then I'm out of here. And I just think it doesn't create my my impression. It doesn't help create loyalty among the top players because but they're call, they're brought up in this environment now, this tour that the main way of, of achieving success on the tour isn't necessarily winning Grand Slams. It's getting deals like this. But what would you say about Serena Williams? She's she's. Uh has been created as bigger than the tour, and she is bigger than the tour. But she's still obviously really good for the tour. She's the exception. She's I mean, you know, the she's the exception. What you're getting, what you're getting to now, especially. And look, let's let's be frank about this. You got some blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls who a lot of the world look up to as you know as as these fashion icons and as as sort of role models and stuff. And I think you know you get into a situation with some of these girls where you're going to have you know they're, they're rich, they're famous, they're making you know. You know, they're doing great. Everybody knows who they are. The only thing they can't do is play tennis. But, you know, hey, you know, so what? I mean, I, th- I think with Serena, I mean, she, she is the exception. I think you have to emphasize that because anything, anytime you talk about Serena, almost anything that has to do with tennis, she's unusual compared to any other player. Well, you wouldn't say that she, she goes out of her way to support the tour outside of the slams, but yet she's still, because she's such a big name, that's what makes her important for tennis. Right. But she also wins. And but I, mean, I, wouldn't I su- also wouldn't say Maria. I mean, Maria maybe a little lack of commitment at the beginning of this year, but has she, has she really 
not been committed to playing in the past? Well, she may have been committed and working, but I mean, she hasn't been putting up the results for you know for a variety of legitimate reasons. Well, there's injuries, but, but she's also had extracurricular stuff. She's always got the fashion stuff. She's got all these other you know hobbies, and and no, one, I'm not taking that away. I mean, she's free to do whatever she wants, but there is a perception, whether you believe it or not, from many people that uh, how committed is she? You know, how 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 into it is she, and and how important is it for her? I mean, only she knows that, or, or and, her, and her agent and such, but. You know, it, it, it seems to me that they've, they've tried, like you said, they've tried to brand her. And, and look, I'm a fan of Maria's. I think she's, she's good for the game. But I do think that th- they're all different compared to Serena. And, you know, you've got to love a Justine, you know. Uh, all right, granted, Justine is not, doesn't have the you, – you're not, you're not going to start with that clay if you're trying to mold some, you know, very with it, you know, sort of sexy, you know, pop cultural – you know, type icon. However, you know, there's a girl, she's all about the tennis. And, and, and I think that works great for her. And to some degree, I think Serena, you know, uh, what, what I love about Serena is, you know, she had that one period where she wanted to go to Hollywood and be a star and that didn't really pan out. And I think she was really serious about that. It wasn't just a lark. No, she was. Yeah. You know, uh, she wanted, she wanted to, to, to make a career change and they said, no, thank you. But, you know, she settled back in and accepted her fate, you know, <laughs> in a way almost, she's not quite where Agassiz got to ultimately, but she's, you know, maybe she's going to get there because Serena Serena Williams, you still the first thing you think about is tennis, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm not sure that when you look at a Sharapova now, the first thing you think about is tennis, or maybe even, maybe even Ivanovich is getting to that point. And then we've had a couple letters, and, and this is a nice segue here, but talking about we have the Marias and the Ivanoviches at the top of the game, the Belgians are back, but you know who who is the equivalent of the Marin Silic of the Del Patro on the on the women's tour? Who's to be? Who are we supposed to be getting excited about? One, I had a couple of people just wondering that. What do you guys think? One person that I was happy to see play well in Australia was Victoria Azarenka. She, she started last year playing well. She, she kind of burned out. She's very intense. I think she, she burned herself out by the middle of the year. She'd beaten Serena in, in uh, Key Biscayne, but by the U.S. Open, she'd pretty much disappeared. But she came back and played what I thought was an excellent match, all three sets against Serena. Serena just turned it around and beat her, but... For for that match, it was Azarenka impressed me as someone who, if she's not going to win Grand Slam, she's going to she will continue to get better, and she has the potential to challenge them for them. And I, I actually enjoyed watching her play more than some of the other um, some of the other young women. She she is athletic, and I I like her sort of harsh harsh style. She, she has an edge. She has an edge. I guess she has to she has to worry or watch for for that burnout element that they're being too intense. So that that could. That could be a problem for well, her. And you had wrote in your, I remember in your blog, Steve, that I thought was a key point in that that Australian Open match. She was up four love, mm-hmm. thirty all, and she ended up, she and, and she had the match in her pocket essentially against Serena, and she hits a drop shot. Just a little slip up there. She she yeah. went for too much on one forehand, and then she hit a drop shot. I don't know if it was the first time in the match, but she'd been belting her back, and instead she tried a drop shot, just because she was in a new position in the match. She wasn't. She was ahead. She she. She wasn't ready, quite ready for that moment, and that's all it took for to let Serena back in. You know, I think I, you know, I, I kind of dissent on it. The point, you know, on, on this whole concept of, you know, we have to rethink this whole idea of, you know, who's the next. You know, I'll tell you who the next is. The next is is uh, Yankovic. The next is Ivanovic. The next is Sharapova. The point is, none of these girls. You know, usually you're thinking about the next big thing. You what you have is a pretty static situation near the top, like you know, uh, and and it's becoming a little like that in men's tennis too now for different reasons. But you know, usually you have you know a cluster of people at the top and then up and coming to break them up. But you know, it's it's total anarchy on a women's tour now. I think in that sense, there's only been one next in this decade, this whole decade. It's only Sharapova. She was the only one in this in the in the last ten years who was new who stayed at the top. So. No, exactly. And so what you have now, you have a bunch of bunch of women who are actually not at the top. 
But we're near the top, and that kind of, you know, almost pulls a platform out from under, like, up-and-comers. You know, sure, you can throw a name like a Wozniacki out there, too. You know, you can throw a Wickmeyer out there. You know, she, if you're looking for a next big thing, it could be that. But the whole trend on a tour, you know, really has been more toward having a bunch of people near the top, changing places, you know, winning, you know, going into slums, disappearing, getting injured. And so, it, it, you know, that, that sense that we once had of the sort of clarity and, and, and organ, you know, almost order of the tour is really kind of broken down. Maybe the next is Serena Williams. Yeah. I think there she's now next. And uh, I mean, I think it'll surprise a lot of people. I mean, as a rank is what she's number six in the world right now. It's just not a shabby ranking. Um, but does anyone consider her ready to win a Grand Slam yet? Probably not, but um, I think the fact that she she does this, Steve has. Oh, she's, I think she's, she's ready. You think so? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she has to get. You know, she hasn't got. She got into. I don't think she's gotten to even a semi yet, but um, a, of a major. But I mean, she uh, has she? I don't no, know. not I don't a semi, she, yeah. but she's. But the game is there. You know, you saw what she. You could see she plays heads up with these with these top players, like with Serena. She wasn't giving anything away. There's nothing tentative or or n- nothing you know sort of uh, rookie like or intimidated about her. You know, she was in there to play to win. Just didn't get it done. Yeah, that about says it. And, um, well, we're going to wrap up this podcast and wanted to let everyone know to keep sending in the questions. We're going to do a, another Q&A with our reader questions later this week. And one of the topics will be, is Roger Federer becoming too smug for his own good? So well, stay tuned for that. We're, we're anticipating a, a nice backlash there. The emails, please send them to podcast at tennis.com. And uh, until then, with Steve and Pete, uh, I'm James Martin, and we're out of here. Thanks. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.